Welcome to the Health Leaders Revenue Cycle podcast. I'm Alexandra Pecci, Revenue Cycle Editor for Health Leaders. I'm excited to welcome back Shante Moheiser, owner of It's Healthcare LLC, and Kem Tolliver, president of Medical Revenue Cycle Specialists, who are going to share their top issues that they're following and watching as revenue cycles prepare for 2022. Taya and Kem, welcome back, and thanks again for being here. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. So I know it feels a little like we're still recovering from 2020, but in reality, 2022 is just a couple of weeks away. So I know you both watch revenue cycles so carefully. Can you talk about some of the trends that you're seeing and how they'll impact the revenue cycle as we move into the new year? Wow, that's kind of a heavily loaded question. How do we have like a, a couple of days to run through this or? Yeah, I think you'll need a couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I think, you know, top of top of list and top of mind, one of the things that really comes to mind for me is is mental health. I mean, Kim, I know you've been heavily, you know, educating in that space. Absolutely. You know, with mental health, you see a lot of emphasis on mental health services, behavioral health services in the CMS final rule and in the upcoming uh, CPT and HICSPIX changes. So, you know, what I would recommend is that as, as folks are thinking about um, service lines and even service diversification within their organizations, pay really close attention to what the federal government and what local governments are doing to expand mental health services. We're seeing a ton of behavioral telebehavioral health services, and that's also going to kind of expand the providers who are in this space. Um, so making sure that if your organization does decide to, um, you know, kind of branch out into mental health services, that you're taking a look at all of the requirements and guidelines for not only your commercial insurances, but for your Medicaid providers, um, as well as CMS on what those rules and regulations are going to be with, within taxonomy codes and service delivery um, licensure, um, making sure that you understand the codes, the CPT codes that certain providers are going to be eligible to bill for be behavioral health services. Yeah, and I think that, you know, one of the things that's come up quite a bit for, for me um, as we have been working to provide feedback to CMS was that telemental health, you know, we saw a lot of particularly rural care providers wanted to keep those audio only telehealth visits. And for most services, they were not finalized into the rule, but they were for mental health. Um, and so just a reminder to everybody, you know, one of the things that that we really want to drive home is, you know, you still have to have audiovisual capability that um, that decision to be audio only or, you know, whether it's a decision or a limitation that has to be on the patient side. But I'm, I'm hopeful that this will help expand that mental health outreach, the ability to continue those visits um, through telemental health. Absolutely. And, you know, as as we're thinking about other trends that are coming down the road, um, you know, thinking about the way that Medicare is, you know, seeking to expand services, they are now going to open up billing directly um, to to Medicare for physician assistance. And Taya, I know that this has been something that you've been tracking as well. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is something that, that people have been looking for for a long time, right? The ability to bill directly, to reassign billing, um, even to incorporate with other physician assistants. I think that this is going to be a significant change in the, in the industry. And I think it's something that PAs have been looking for for a long time. One of the questions we get often is uh, whether or not they will still only be reimbursed at 85%. And unfortunately, that, that's still the case. <laughs> Yeah, how nice would that be if they could actually bill at 100%, but they're still mid-level providers in Medicare's eyes. So yeah, that 85% rule is still going to be the norm. However, if you think about, you know, the, the, the expansion of provider services, this is a huge win for, for, the, for the industry. Um, because now, you know, when you're thinking about medical organizations who have struggled with staffing, um, now we have that capability of adding physician assistants onto the roster um, as, you know, care, you know, care delivery um, oppor opportunities. So that's a really, you know, huge win. Just making sure, again, that when folks are deciding to bill for PA services, that they understand um, Medicare's guidelines um, and really understand those credentialing requirements for Medicare for PA services. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, you know, we spend a lot of time ensuring that we've educated providers um, in terms of how to submit their charges and billing. But when it comes to that full scope of reimbursement and what that process is and what it looks like, we tend to pull in the MDs to walk them through, hey, this is money that gets taken back. This is how much we've negotiated. This is what was reimbursed. And I think it's time to really start including more members of the care team in that full life cycle of a claim discussion. Absolutely. You know, as we're thinking about Medicare trends, there are also some trends that are coming down the road that are not um, so great news for, for patients. And those are the, the increases to the, the Medicare monthly premiums. Um, you know, Taya, I know that you and I have been you know, listening to, to this and, and hearing what patients have to say, you know, what are some thoughts that, that you have about that? Yeah, so it's, it's frustrating, I think, for patients when they see these increases and to know all of these formulas are, are predetermined, right, algorithms, and they have to be certain percentages of total cost of other components. And so it's not something that's done in an arbitrary way, but it does really impact individuals who are living on a fixed income. And so, for example, in 2022, the monthly premium for individuals is going to increase for Part B from 148 to 170 per month, but their deductible is also going up $30. And even though it doesn't seem like a huge amount, when you're on a fixed income, that can be that can be really, really costly for you, right? It can be the difference between whether or not you're able to go out with a friend and get some of that social part of your, your SDOH benefits back and forth, or maybe it, it's the expense, you know, of transportation that you now, you know, don't have funds for. So for individuals on a fixed income, those monthly Part B premiums can be, can be significant for them, as well as the deductible increases. And I think that it also can have an impact on their compliance with their medications once they hit that donut hole, right? And they've got these additional expenses, but their income may or may not have increased and that income is fixed. I think it's, it's a challenge. And I think it's one we need to be mindful of when we're talking to our Medicare patients. Yeah, and you know, as, as we think about patient responsibility um, from a financial perspective, 
that's been something that's been a challenge for all of us as, as we've been providing hybrid in-office and telehealth services, right? So making sure that we are keeping our patients' you know, pocketbooks in mind um, and making that process as easy as possible for them to pay their bills um, and, and to pay their out-of-pocket expenses in a secure and touchless way. Um, so yeah, just making sure that we're, we're doing our due diligence to give patients um, you know, all the resources that we can so that they can make those payments virtually um, as well as in person. Well, you know, and that ties right into surprise billing, right? I mean, one of the, the challenges, one of the great frustrations for the patient population is not knowing what they are going to be billed. And um, that coming really full circle into the news, really getting a lot of traction um, and a lot of individuals echoing those statements, I think, made surprise billing top of mind for everyone during this particular term. And so there's a lot of changes that are coming up in 2022 in relation to the, the No Surprises Act. There's, there's just a lot that, that we now as providers need to pay attention to to make sure that we are abiding by these protections that were created for the patients. And this act that they put through, the Surprise Billing Act, and their federal regulations that I know um, that Alex, I know you just spoke with someone and, and had a session on this recently, you know, covering surprise billing. There's just so much that goes into it. We would highly recommend, you know, reading the fact sheets about it, taking a look at it. I mean, most, most providers that are performing out of network services at in-network facilities um, or even out of network facilities, they're accustomed to following these regulations and looking at this information. But there's new terms we're talking about in here too, right? We've got some good faith efforts that are now gonna be required for patients who are uninsured or who are insured but don't want anything submitted to their insurance. And that GFE term has been tossed around a ton as it relates to surprise billing. So I would really encourage anyone who provides um, out of network services to look into that GFE and see what those requirements are. I mean. For example, you know, it has to reflect if you have a, a good faith effort for an uninsured individual or an insured patient who doesn't want to use their insurance, you have to give them a GFE that says the cash price for the services less any discounts and reflect the total cost of the expected care during that entire period of care and you have to give that to them in advance and that would be anything that's more than I think they said their substantial amount was $400 was their threshold and I think that most services are, are going to go beyond that. So it's just so important if you are performing out-of-network services that you really take a, a deep dive into one of these fact sheets. And, and they are all over the place, you know, the fact sheets for the final rule. You don't definitely don't have to read the 2,400-page rule, right, Kim? <laughs> exactly. Thank goodness, because there's, there's so many um, reputable resources out there who have done that legwork for us, um, you know, health leaders, media, AMA, MGMA, AAPC. Um, there, there are so many great resources out there. You know, it's, it's, really, it's really great that revenue cycle leaders have these resources to go to to get this information. And I think that's where we have to think about, you know, our 
know, where we, where we expect our patients to go to get their information. And that's really kind of boils down to that patient engagement and making sure that we are educating our patients because this is, you know, some complex stuff that, that they're dealing with. So, you know, breaking it down into bite-sized pieces so patients really understand their financial responsibility, having those, those um, you know, cheat sheets and FAQs available for them on our websites, on our patient portals, just to make sure that they understand. And, you know, it, <laughs> I, I kind of think about the flip side to that, right, as we're educating our patients and making sure that they understand, um, you know, their out-of-pocket expenses and, you know, what the, what the process looks like for reimbursement. You know, that kind of turns on its head when we're dealing with um, insurance reimbursement. Um, we have been seeing a, a trend in delayed payments, and it, it really is up to us to stay um, as proactive as possible with delayed payments. And Taya and I have been, you know, involved in, um, you know, different work groups and, and, and other conversations around the country um, with organizations who are dealing with delayed payments with insurance companies. Yeah, I would, I would completely agree. You know, we're hearing from a lot of individuals that they're seeing, I mean, to significant delays in payments. And when you couple that with the, the challenges of the virtual credit card payments that we're seeing um, and the frustration of those virtual payments and the fees associated with it. Um, I mean, Kim, you and I talk about this really all over the nation but um, maybe uh, you do such a great kind of synopsis of the challenges with those virtual payments. Do you wanna kind of talk to the, the listeners here for Alex? Absolutely. So, so let me first start off by saying that there are many times when we're having conversations with um, medical practices and when we, when we bring up the virtual credit card payments, uh, it, it's usually split down the line 50-50. Some organizations who are completely, you know, understanding of what virtual credit card payments are, and the other half are not so sure. Um, virtual credit card payments are essentially um, payments that are coming to the provider from a third party. And that third party is, is usually an outsourced entity um, from the, the major payer, the commercial payer that amount that is being paid to the provider um, is being paid less a finance fee. That finance fee essentially is a deduction or a subtraction from that provider's allowable amount. So what ends up happening is when a provider accepts a virtual credit card payment, usually they're coming in the mail um, and it looks like a little credit card, right? Or, a, you know, a sheet of paper that has um, uh, a number that, that you kind of type in or you swipe into a merchant services um, vending machine. And when you swipe that and when you accept that credit card payment, um, that finance fee, which is usually around 3% or so, 275 to 3%, um, that is being split between the TPA and the, the payer. Um, and again, that's being deducted from that provider's allowable amount. Um, so it's, it's usually not something that is mandatory. Um, when it is mandatory that you accept it, Taya and I, we strongly recommend that you advocate on behalf of your practice um, to request another form of payment. 
um, because virtual credit card payments are really done um, not in the provider's best interest. So, you know, Taya and I, we have advocated this, advocated for this on the state level and national level um, to, to make this an, an opt-in um, process. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's very frustrating, um, particularly, I think, for those individuals who are not processing claims payments day to day, because so many individuals that we talk to that are in leadership positions, they are fully aware of the issue this causes to their bottom line. They do not want to accept these. But what they don't realize is that they haven't had those conversations necessarily with everyone who is accepting the payments, who's getting checks in, and who's getting, um, you know, ERAs in, and, and EOBs in. And so what happens is when these come to your staff that are working kind of boots on the ground, if they don't know that you don't want these accepted, they just walk them over to the merchant services, um, you know, machine or log in online and go ahead and post that payment right there. And so those fees are still being deducted and it just it just ripples through, right? Because then your deposits don't match your remittance advice statements and it just creates such a headache. And so it's definitely something, you know, we want to see providers not have to deal with. There's, there's enough trouble and enough difficulty trying to collect and get your revenue cycle as expedient as possible without challenges like that. And I, I think for that you for that reason, some of the the things that we've seen um, sort of come down the pipe in terms of delays, particularly for next year and things that were supposed to go through but got delayed, have been really, really helpful, like appropriate use criteria, the penalty phase for that was delayed. Um, and there's been some other delays as well. But I think, you know, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about right now what's going on with the OIG's work plan and the right to access initiative. And I know this has been just sort of all over the place right now, but um, so the right to access initiative is really that right for the patient to be able to get access to their to their medical records and their information on a timely basis. And uh, OCR has come out and you know, made a point of saying, we are going to investigate this and we're going to look for misconduct. They began doing that in 2019 and here we are wrapping up 2021 now. Um, there have been 20 settlements that have been completed already by OCR. They've done 20 investigations and each one found misconduct. The total fines we've seen have been between $3,500 and $200,000. So I think taking a look at, at your workflows and your processes is gonna be extremely important in 2022. Yeah. and and. It, you know, for the listeners, when, when you think about revenue cycle management, the reason why what Taya is mentioning, the, the Cures Act, um, why this is, is, is so relevant is because most of the time, the, the revenue cycle folks are responsible for creating that bill for the patient, um, for, you know, getting the, a copy of their medical records. And sometimes um, from that billing process, to the point of patient actually getting a copy of their records, there's a delay. So we wanna make sure that everyone who is involved in that process understands these new guidelines, the Cures Act, um, and making sure that patients are getting access to their PHI in a secure and in a timely manner. Um, so Alex, I know that Taya and I have certainly covered a lot of ground when it comes to trends. <laughs> 
So you know, we want to kick it over to you to see if you have any other questions for us about this topic, because you know, we can keep going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really did want to hear a little bit more about the No Surprises Act. I feel like in some ways after, um, you know, the price transparency rule last year kind of fizzled a little bit, that people might be wondering whether that's going to be the case with the No Surprises Act. So I wanted to hear what you thought about that. And you know, if you don't think this is going to fizzle, what should they be paying attention to in terms of, um, you know, how they're preparing for this? And again, thinking about our audience who is really revenue cycle leaders. Sure. Yeah, I don't see this one fizzling out. I think it got it got far too much traction um, and attention placed on it. And not only that, but I mean, if we're all truly honest, right, our, the billing processes in the healthcare industry are so complex and so confusing that we can understand where there's opacity from the patient's perspective. And really the surprise billing rule is, is applying to when those patients received care from an out-of-network provider or a facility and the service costs weren't fully covered by the, by the uh, patient's insurance provider. And so this is really just trying to create transparency there so that patients understand what they may be responsible for. So it really only applies um, to a subset of individuals because certain out-of-network providers at in-network facilities um, are, are, you know, do not have to comply with this, right? So like emergency medicine, obviously that would be difficult for emergency medicine if you're in the middle of, you know, cardiac arrest to pause the patient and give them that notification of what their balance may be, right? So there's there's certain circumstances where individuals are obviously not going to be able to, to comply with the full scope of this, and they are recognizing that. Um, and they are also saying, you know, non-ancillary out-of-network providers at in-network facilities, you can give notice and consent of the intention to balance bill if you've met certain conditions. So they're also putting into place, hey, we understand that there's some circumstances in which you may want to be able to balance bill the patient. If you've notified them in advance and met all these certain requirements, then you can do so. So I think that's really the area to pay attention to, right? Is one, is this going to apply to you? Because there are exceptions, right? Emergency medicine, anesthesiology, pathology, there's a bunch of exceptions. But also if this does apply to you, um, when can you balance bill? And so if you want to be able to, to balance bill because you are a non-ancillary out-of-network provider at an in-network facility, then, you know, the patient needs to know that the care is going to be provided out-of-network. You also have to notify them whether or not there was somebody within your facility that is in-network. So if there's another provider in your in-network facility, but you are an out-of-network provider, you have to tell them if your coworker could perform this service for them in-network. And you have to give the estimated cost of care for those services. There's also some very specific requirements for the timing of this disclosure, some additional stuff that about you know, what you have to document in the patient's disclosure. Uh, so it's very important to really dig into the fact sheets on surprise billing. Again, you definitely don't have to read through all 2,400 pages, but in the event that there is a dispute, they've established a full dispute resolution process, a full IDR process to go through, um, which basically has these periods of, I'll say arbitration, right? Where you have 30 days to try to, to work out agreements with the payer. There's also a methodology where the patient can make complaints and you have to work out a process to, to meet the requirements of 
really uh, getting on the same page with the patient. We talked about the GFE requirements, but I think what's what's also helpful for individuals to know is that the, the No Surprises Act, and that's really what CMS is referring to this as whenever they're gonna post about it and talk about it, the No Surprises Act has special requirements where there are multiple providers. So if there's multiple providers uh, performing a service and you're all in the same facility and it's like one period of care, they have two different components. So the person who scheduled and furnished the primary service is going to be called the convening provider. And then the any other individual auxiliary providers are going to be the co-providers. Um, so right now, only the convening provider has to give that disclosure if they want to balance bill and provide that range of potential costs. But they did make a point in the final rule of saying at this time, they don't want information from co-providers. So that's another indicator to me that not only is the No Surprises Act not going away, but that it may become more complex over time because they did make a point to say right now, we're not going to ask for this, which means they might later. Um, they have as they have with many other laws said, you know, whichever, whichever law is most restrictive is going to apply. So if you have a state law that already kind of talks about no surprises, there's some states that have a no surprising, no surprises law already. In most cases, it's going to be the law that is the most stringent, restrictive, or patient protective that it's going to take priority. And notably, no surprises act does not reverse ERISA policy. So self-funded plans really are generally um, are not going to be subject to the state regulation. It does go on to say that ERISA regulations currently provide some protections against the current definition of surprise billing. So whether or not this is going to apply to your facility is really going to, to have to be discussed with your legal counsel or compliance advisor. So no surprises is, is one of those things that because I think it's heavy in the press and it's something that patients can understand, it's a term patients can understand, I think we're going to continue to hear more about it. Um, Ken, would you agree? Oh, absolutely. This isn't going away. And, you know, Alex, if, if you think about it, we've all, every single organization, every single healthcare organization has in some way um, dealt with patients who are going to get out-of-network bills, right, for, for services that we provide. Um, and, and that has largely been due to the fact that we are providing services at in-network organizations, and, um, you know, we may not participate with every single insurance. Um, so I think where we are right now in the industry, you know, with, with public opinion is that we as the healthcare providers have to figure out a way to communicate with and educate our patients about their out-of-pocket expenses. That's really where, where we are right now. And in, in, in that case, Tay and I do not see this going away. Um, so the best thing to do is start with your revenue cycle management staff. Make sure that they understand, um, you know, balanced billing. Make sure that they understand the requirements that your organization is going to need to comply with. Um, make sure that the patient is educated, right? So updating your internal financial policies, making sure staff understand when to use advanced beneficiary notices, um, making sure that your policies and procedures are being updated. When patients call in about a bill and they're, they're inquiring about a bill, making sure that we're double checking to see whether or not this was, you know, 
a result of balanced billing. Um, so we want to do our due diligence to protect our organizations through education. And that's going to be educating our staff so that they are complying and then uh, educating our patients so that they understand their rights and um, our responsibilities. Any other final thoughts from either of you before we wrap up? Well, you know, Taya and I have referenced the CMS final rule for 2022 um, throughout our discussion today. Um, and we highly recommend that the, the listeners take some time and really look at the, the key um, updates from that final rule. Um, there are, again, you know, updates on expansion of mental health services, new scope of practice for PAs. There are also gonna be some updates to telehealth services. Um, there are going to be updates to E&M codes for, for 2022. So check out AMA and your other coding resources um, for, for updated um, coding guidance for 2022. Um, Taya, I'll let you, I know there's so much to, that we'd love to impart on the, on the listeners before we go. Oh, there's so much to so much to go through. And, you know, I would just echo what you're saying, Kim, that you really have to go through as much as you possibly can, you know, find your favorite listservs, find your favorite fact sheets and review that information closely. You know, I mean, things are changing so quickly. We were talking about the emergency temporary standard over the summer. We no sooner finished getting an outline for education that it became mandatory for implementation. We have been working with organizations to implement it only for you know, mid-November, the US Court of Appeals to say, hey, actually take no steps to implement or enforce this until we finish having a conversation kind of internally with OSHA about it. And so things are changing so quickly. It's hard for us even you know, as speakers and educators to make sure we're getting the most timely information out. So I think for everyone, there is a responsibility to go out and to read all of those listservs that you can to have those critical news sources. And at the very least, if you don't have time to do anything else, take 20 minutes and listen to these podcasts and make sure you're staying current. Absolutely. You know, the, the, the final thought that I would also share is the Medicare conversion factor is changing for 2022. Um, and it's a good idea to stay up to date on your, uh, your, your, lo your local MAC and the fee schedule that your MAC is going to, to put out for Medicare for your jurisdiction. Um, and that's also a, a good opportunity for you to look at your charge description master um, at, you know, at the end of the year prior to, to 2022 and look to see you know, what CPT codes, what Hicks picks codes are going to be available for your specialty um, for, for coding and for billing so that you can prep your fee schedules accordingly for the upcoming year. Kim and Taya, you guys are always such amazing guests and just fonts of knowledge for our listeners. Thank you so much for talking with us again and for sharing your vast expertise with us. Alex, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you, thank you. It's been far too long since we chatted. I agree. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on the Health Leaders Revenue Cycle podcast. Until next time, keep taking care of patients and each other.